Would you turn your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 1? I uh, <clears throat> want to continue to draw our attention back to this text because it, it, is provi- it provides us with such a perfect connection between the law of God exposing the sin of homosexuality and the gospel of God being proclaimed and the work of God to save. Um, and so we'll, we'll dip into it again this morning and certainly in the next couple of weeks. Please stand with me one more time as we read this together. I'm so glad you all are here this morning. Thank you for coming and loving the Word and sharing this time with us as the body of Christ. Let's read this text together and then I'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time together this morning. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 17, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Eternal Son, Spirit of God, we come to You. You are the immortal, invisible, eternal God. It is an amazing thing that You live in us through the Spirit and we can come before You because of Jesus, the Son, the Mediator, God made man. And We are Your people. You are our God. You have made us. We have not made ourselves. We are Your sheep. We are Your chosen people whom You have set Your love upon, not because we deserve it or because we are lovely, but because You are love. And we come to You with a sense of awe this morning because of Your great glory. And awe because of Your grace, having given to us Your Word and made us new. And we come to You with open hearts, asking that You would teach us from Your Word. Father, teach us how to hold fast 
and to hold high the truth of the Gospel. That we would be filled with a sense of zeal to proclaim Your glory and Your Word and Your truth among those who have not yet heard or not yet bowed the knee to Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that as we proclaim the truth, that we would be able to do it with the mercy and the patience and the love, the compassion of Christ. Father, we, all, we have only to remember who we were and who we are before You as a holy God and how You have poured out Your mercy upon us, how You have given us forgiveness and grace and showed Your patience to us in our stubbornness, in our wickedness, in our ungodliness, in our selfishness, in our being at enmity with You. And You showed us Your love in giving Your Son Help us help those thoughts and those perspectives of reality to come crashing in on our minds and our hearts the moment we stand before another sinner who is refusing to hear the truth and repent and follow Christ. May we appeal to them in love. May we appeal to them in, with a sense of Your holiness and glory. Father, guard our hearts and may we speak the truth and live in godliness and become the kind of people that, that show people, others, sinners just like us, the greatness of the saving work of, of Christ and speak the truth with clarity and boldness. Father, use us, we pray. Open doors that we may, we may speak to those whom You are drawing to Your Son. And we ask that You would do this for Your glory and our joy and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to begin this morning by expressing my gratitude to you for your faithfulness, uh, for your consistency, your attention, your encouragement through this series. I understand that this series isn't an easy series to listen to. Um, we know that it is important for us, especially in our in our day and age. And so I'm thankful to the Lord for your love for the truth, your love for Christ, your love for His Word, your love for fellow sinners, your desire to be equipped and prepared to share the Gospel of Jesus Christ with others. This morning we come to part four in our series of called The Bible and, and Homosexuality. And so both this week and next week, we will seek to answer the question that you can see up on the screen, how should we respond to a homosexual friend? And so we've kind of been building up to this point all along the way, giving ourselves the, why, you know, the reasons why we, we even study a topic like this in the church. We've been looking at the biblical foundation of marriage that starts in the book of Genesis and really informs the rest of Scripture. And we've looked at the scriptural texts that clearly condemn homosexuality as sin. Now what? Well, may the Lord bring us opportunities to speak the truth in love to those who are enslaved to such sin. Sinners just like us. And so we're taking steps along the way to prepare to 
leave the gathering and to scatter into the community and be able to accurately and effectively, if God will allow us, communicate the truth of the gospel to those He brings us to influence. We must understand that our sessions are not merely food for thought. Right? This isn't just a mental exercise we're having here on Sundays. The calling of the church, remember, is to hold fast and to hold high the truth of the Gospel. And to make disciples. To make disciples. That's what we're called to do uh, of those whom the Lord brings into our care and influence. So all of our sessions are intended to equip us. And just that concept is such a helpful piece in even coming to the gathering of the body of Christ. It gives you the clear expectation of why we even gather. We gather to equip one another so that we can scatter and make disciples. And so if, you're, if your heart is to walk in the calling that God has given to you and to actually engage unbelievers just like you and I used to be with the Gospel and make disciples, it, it brings you into the gathering with a whole different perspective of, I've got to be ready. I have to get what is being given to me down so that I can reproduce it to others and call them to repentance and faith in Christ. So that, that's, that's what we're doing here. Including those we call to repentance, those who at this very moment may be living a life of homosexual sin. I mean, think about it. I was thinking about this this week. Are you ready to pray, God, send me someone who is in the throes of such a destructive sin as homosexuality? Send me someone. Open the door so that I can share with them the Gospel. And call them out of that. Now, every sin, the sins that we have been enslaved to in our lives, every sin is worthy of God's judgment. But sometimes in life, some sins seem to be harder to, to get the entanglements out of your life. They're, they're what we call life-controlling sins. So we must be equipped to make disciples of Christ from every people, group, culture, and walk of life. And so after this series, don't be a bit surprised if God brings you someone. And you know what? They're going to need our help and our love all the way through. Just like we have with each other. And so one of the important aspects of making disciples is to be able to answer questions and refute errors with God's truth. That's going to be an important part of the, the discipleship process. It's very important that we bring those that we are discipling alongside of us and love them. That's going to be a huge part about this, and we'll talk more about that later. But that we love them in ways that they've never been loved before. We love them like Christ would love them. We serve them. We show them the gentleness and humility of Christ, but they also need to hear the truth spoken from a Christ-like life. Truth and life are both vital in disciple-making. Truth and life. Think about it. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.16, he said, Timothy, keep a close watch on two things. What were they? On yourself and on your teaching. Persist in that. 
Watch your doctrine, Timothy, and watch your life. Watch your likeness to Christ. Watch the truth that you teach. And persist in keeping a close watch on those two things. Because in doing so, you will will save yourself and those who hear you. Life and doctrine. So this morning, I'm going to present to you three arguments that your homosexual friend might say to you in order to defend his or her person or I mean excuse me his or her position and lifestyle. And then I want to give you a biblical response to each of those arguments. And next week we're going to look at three more and give a biblical response to each. So I'm going to tell you ahead of time the six arguments that I've chosen to look at and respond to with a biblical answer. And if you and along the way over these over these weeks that we're discussing this, if you have other questions that you have in your mind like I've heard this before as a as a response to the Word of God, uh, please let me know. And I'd love to, to work through those together as well at, at, in God's time. But here's the six answers that you may hear from a homosexual friend that, that I feel like we need to be prepared to answer from God's Word. First, I'm an atheist and love is love. We've heard things like that, right? I'm an atheist and love is love. Second, The Old Testament laws don't apply today. Third, and this one will be our longest one today, I want you to be exposed to some of these thought processes. The Scripture never addresses homosexual orientation and monogamous, covenantal, loving homosexual relationships. Let me read that one again. The Scripture never addresses homosexual orientation and never addresses monogamous, covenantal, loving homosexual relationships. Fourth, I was born this way. Fifth, I was abused. And sixth, same-sex attraction is okay as long as I don't act on it. Some of these are answers that you may hear from someone who doesn't really know anything about Christ. Some of these answers may be something that you hear from even inside the professing church. So I'd like to cover these over the next couple of weeks. And what we're going to do to seek to, to, to grapple with these, with each argument, is answer the argument with the truth, but also want us to understand that that's not enough. It's not enough to win the argument. That's not our goal, right? The ultimate goal is to address the heart with the law of God and the Gospel of Christ. That's where we're going with this. So we need to keep that in mind too. So there's two parts to the answers that we will think through. Answer the argument with truth. But then address the heart with the law of God and the Gospel. So the main idea this morning, if I could summarize it, is this. Keep speaking sound doctrine that accords with the Gospel saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And really, this is drawn right from 1 Timothy chapter 1, where you'll notice, and you can look at the text up here or in your, in your Bible, where it says, Paul presents the law of God, and he says, "These we know that the law is good. Teach the law. Teach it lawfully. Teach it rightly. Teach it because it exposes the sinner. 
teach sound doctrine, but teach it in accordance with the Gospel. And then he explains about the mercy and patience of God toward him. And We're going to look at this at the very end of our time again. But that's where the main idea comes from. Keep speaking sound doctrine. Answer the, the, refuta- answer the arguments with, with sound doctrine that accords with the Gospel. And remember to be saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Argument number one. And we're going to look at different places in the Scriptures today. So you can turn right away to Romans chapter 1 again. Have you noticed that's a, a key text to go to? We've been looking at it almost every week in some way. Romans 1. I'm an atheist and love is love. You might hear something like this during your conversation with a homosexual friend. And it's a classic collision of worldviews. There is a God, there isn't. And of course, we already know from Romans 1 that when someone refuses to believe in the presence of God, they do so in order to accommodate their sin. If you remove God from the universe, there is no logic to having a sense of accountability or obedience to a law given by that God. And so, what you have here is something that, that isn't just unique to talking with a homosexual, but someone that, that is just a sinner who doesn't want to submit to a holy creator. It's a collision of worldviews that provides an open door. When you hear people say something like this, when they even begin to talk about God, I'm an atheist, right? there's an open door for basic witnessing and confrontation with a biblical worldview. When we talk about a biblical worldview, we talk about those doctrines, those, those truths that, that are your glasses through which you look to interpret all of life. When you look at the world as a believer, you interpret everything through your view of God. God, the way you view God to be, shapes every thought of your life. The nature of Scripture is part of your biblical worldview. Either the Scripture is God's Word or it isn't. Either it shapes the way you think and respond to everything, or it doesn't really matter. The nature of man, the nature of salvation, these are important pieces to how any person views the world around them and responds to it. Well, when a person says, I'm an atheist, and if I feel love, it's, it's love. They, they don't believe in the existence of God. They obviously then don't believe that Scripture is truth. They don't believe that man is basically evil and needs salvation. And so they, they don't believe in salvation altogether. So all of those pieces, they're coming at life. They're coming at marriage. They're coming at everything in life from an entirely different perspective. And so there's no way to begin to just introduce to them, well, you know what? Homosexuality is wrong. On what basis? So you have to back up. And you just have to begin to introduce them to the truth that there is a God. If they don't believe that, you're not going to get anywhere else with them. They have to understand the existence of God. And here's what we need to understand. Is that... And we'll, we'll, come to, we'll come back to, to this thought in just a moment. But what we need to understand is that you have to show them 
that they already know that there is a Creator because of the creation. Whether they admit it or not. This is something that's very interesting. I want us to understand here right at the bottom of the screen. Believe what the Scripture says about them before you believe what they say about themselves. This is the interesting thing about us and the Word of God is that we think we understand ourselves better than even the Scripture does often. And it's not true. God who made us and knows us and speaks to us through His Word and reveals who we are through the Word understands us better than we know ourselves. And even though a person might stand in front of you and say, there is no God. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in a law. I don't believe in absolute truth. It's actually self-contradictory. When they say, I don't believe in absolute truth, that in itself is an absolute. right? And they know in their mind that there is a God and they have a conscience that witnesses to Him. Let me show you this. Let me show you this from God's Word. Look at Romans 1. You're already there. Notice what the Bible says they know, whether they admit it or not. Verse 19. This is a statement that Paul makes about every human being. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is what? It's plain to them. The knowledge of God's existence is plain to how many human beings? Every human being. Because God has shown it to them. That's a powerful showing. When God shows something, you're going to see it. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Every human being knows that there is a God from the creation around them. Whether they admit it or not, in their heart of hearts, they know it. How do we know that? Because the Bible says it. Verse 21, for although they what? They knew God. That's not talking about just a small group of people. That's talking about all of humanity in the progress of depravity. They know God. No, they don't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Verse 21 says, And they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened, but they know. They knew God. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And God gave them up in the loss of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice also verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a based mind to do what ought not to be done. So what these verses show us is that there was a knowledge of God at some point in this person's life. And what is it? Why would they come to the place where they admit I'm an atheist, or they say I'm an atheist, or I'm agnostic? I just don't know why. What is it? Is because they is it because they really don't know, or they don't have the information they need? What is it? It's because just like the text says, they suppress the truth, verse eighteen, by their what unrighteousness. So the ignorance that they profess 
The ignorance that they say they have. There's no way you can really prove there's a God. There's no way you can know there's a God. The ignorance that they profess isn't an ignorance because of a lack of information. It's a willful ignorance because of their love for sin. So when you speak the Word of God to them like this, and you show them from God's Word that there is a God, and you point to creation and say, look, look at all of this. Did, did everything come from nothing? Is that what you believe? Or did everything come from a Creator? It calls the truth back to the surface for them. Why do you think they get so upset? You know, if you stood there with someone trying to convince them that Santa Claus existed, would they get so angry with you that they would start swearing at you and walk away? Is Santa Claus that big of a deal to them? No. But when you start to show them the truth of creation, staring them in the face, and you reveal God's Word to them, that will make them angry because they know it's true in their heart, just like the Word of God says it is, and it calls them to accountability. So when someone says, I'm an atheist, and love is love, the first thing you need to speak to them in truth is the truth of creation. The truth of God's revelation through creation and Christ and, and, their, and their, their conscience, which we'll look at in a moment. And you show them in Scripture, no, there is a God. Creation demands a Creator. And then secondly, show them that their conscience responds to God's law. This is a wonderful gift that God has put in every human being. It's a conscience. No, no person is born without one. Notice, first of all, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 32. What is a conscience? And we'll look at this in just a moment. But a conscience is a witness that God has put in the heart of every individual that testifies to them that God's law is right. It's a witness that God has put in the heart of every individual to testify to them that God's law is right. And it speaks to them, accusing them when they violate God's law, and it excuses them when they submit themselves to God's law. Isn't that amazing to think about that God has placed that witness within every individual? That in itself is a proof that God exists, but is also a very helpful tool for someone as, uh, that, we're, that we're witnessing to. Think about it this way. You're witnessing to someone the truth of God's law and the Gospel on the outside, and on the inside of the person, they have a witness that what you're saying is true. And when you speak God's Word and God's law rightfully, that witness inside of them, their conscience will, will perk up and say, this guy is telling you the truth. And again, that's why they get upset when you tell them you have violated God's law. It's amazing to think about. God has been so good, but within every human being, a conscience to testify to the truth. Let me show you this. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Not only do they know, not only does every person know the existence of God from creation, but they also know the righteousness of God's law and the consequence of sin. Verse 32. Though they know God's decree. You see? They know it. They know the law of God and its consequences when violated. They know God's decree that those who practice such things, what? Deserve to die. 
somehow they know it. They know it through their conscience. Even though they know God's decree, even though they know that those who practice these sins that violate His decree deserve to die, they still suppress that truth. They do the sins and they give approval to those who practice them. But look even more clearly in Romans chapter 2, verses 12-16. through Look what God says to us here about the conscience. For all who have sinned, verse 12 of Romans 2, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Right, what's the point of that? Well, there's Paul is making a distinction between Jews and Gentiles in this text. Jews being those who have heard God's law and heard it read and seen it written from day one. Right? You come to the temple, you come to the synagogue, they're reading God's law all the time. You know, the Jewish children were quizzed through the Pentateuch, right? Jewish kings were made to memorize the Pentateuch. God's law was constantly presented to them. Well, they're going to be held accountable to that law. But what about those people, the Gentiles, who have never even seen or heard read the law of God? Are they going to be judged by that law too? Yes. If you sin without the law, you're going to perish. You've never heard the law read, you're still going to perish if you break that law. And all who have sinned under the law, who have been influenced by it from day one, being read and shown the law of God, they'll be judged by that too. Well, how is that fair, God? Some hear the law, some don't. Well, how is that fair? Verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. That's one thing Paul's getting at. He doesn't want the Jews to think just because they've come to church every day and heard the law read to them that that's good enough. No, who is it that God gives eternal life to? Those who keep the law perfectly all the time. If you want to earn eternal life by the law, you have to keep it all the time perfectly. And who can do that? No one except for Christ. And that's why we need Jesus. But, verse 14 says, for that when Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have it written down for them, by nature do what the law requires, they still obey the law of God from time to time. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. It's not written down. And what they're showing is that the work of the law is written where? On their hearts. How do these pagan people who have never had one scrap of Bible in their lives, how do they know the difference between lying and telling the truth? Between stealing someone's wife and having their own? How do they know? Well, it's written on their hearts. It's written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness. So God's law is written on the heart of individuals and the conscience tells them God's law is right. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when according to my Gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So this thing called the conscience is in the heart of every individual. It tells them God's law is right. It tells them when they, when they obey it. It tells them when they break it. And that witness called the conscience is somehow going to be recalled in the day of judgment and show the unbeliever who refused Christ 
that they had God's law witnessing to them all along and they broke it and they are worthy of God's judgment. So the conscience will witness against you on the day of judgment if you do not seek repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. This is a very important part of sharing the gospel with someone. One, they need to know, they need to admit that there is a Creator. And you can bank on it, they know it, because creation has told them from day one. And two, they know God's law, and they know that God's law is right, because their conscience bears witness to it in their heart. Again, this is a classic collision of worldviews that provides an open door for basic witnessing and confrontation with a biblical worldview. Creation says God's exist. Conscience says God's law defines love, really. What's the summary of the law? Love, right? Love God, love others. And so that summary of the law shows them that they're disobeying God's law and what they call love really isn't love at all. The law will show that to them. Because love never sins against or breaks the law against its neighbor. Right? Law loves God and neighbor as self. So it's very important that we confront both of those parts of their argument. No, there is a God. And you can't define what love is. God's law defines that. God's law is the summary and the embodiment of love. Secondly, even though many homosexuals don't give any acknowledgement toward the Bible, some may try to use the following arguments in an effort to point out assumed inconsistencies in the Scripture or truth claims. It's funny how religious people can get when they are being confronted with the truth and they try to find inconsistencies. Have you had that happen? They, they, they bring back something they heard way long ago at one point and they'll, they'll throw things. Wait, wait, I, I thought that you guys, you guys, uh, you say not to do this, but yet, you know, you, you guys eat shrimp. You know, the Bible says don't eat shrimp in the Old Testament. The Bible says women ought not to use men's tools. You guys do that now. So they show you inconsistencies and misunderstandings. Or they may profess to believe the Bible. They may incorrectly assert something like this. Number two, the Old Testament laws don't apply today. Christians pick and choose which laws they want to obey from the Old Testament in order to force their thinking on other people. For example, you noticed in the Old Testament, there's lots of things like eating pigs or shrimp or worshiping on the Sabbath day, the Saturday, or different things. That Well, why aren't we doing that anymore? The laws of God are self-contradictory. Christians are self-contradictory in how they talk about God's law. What do we do with that? How do you, how do you answer them? Again, this is an effort to undermine the assertion of texts such as Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20, verse 13. Remember, we talked about those last week. That say, man, you cannot lie with a male as you lie with a woman. Well, we, we don't obey some of the other laws. Why are we obeying those then? What's your answer? How do you give an answer of truth? Well, let's talk about this a moment. 
This is a summary of what I'm going to say. I have in my notes here. I don't have all of my notes written down on the slides, but I wanted to give you kind of a summary for your eyes. But listen carefully to this, and hopefully this will be helpful. God gave to His chosen people Israel many commands to obey, especially during the Mosaic Covenant. Some of the commands were moral laws. What are the moral laws? Ten Commandments, right? We call those the moral laws. Other commands were civil laws. What are civil laws? Such as something such as food restrictions. I mean, there's whole sections. Remember, in, I don't know where you all in your Bible reading right now, maybe you're in uh, Leviticus or Numbers, and, and you, you get to those sections, you're like, okay, I, I can only eat the meat of animals with split hooves. And, I mean, there's like a whole grid of of food you can eat and can't eat. And you just walk, you're like, oh wow, this is a lot of stuff to think about. Well, there's food restrictions. Some of them were what we call ceremonial laws. What are those? Those are the laws that governed their worship practices. Like, like laws for animal sacrifice. And we don't do those anymore either. The moral laws, if kept perfectly, earned eternal life for God's people. Right? That was the promises that God gives. If you keep, and this is still true today, if you keep the law perfectly, your whole life, every moment of every day, right, in your mind, in your heart, with your hands, if you do that, you earn eternal life. The problem is, is we are weak. We are sinful and we can't. And so the law doesn't make anybody perfect and earn eternal life anymore. It reveals our sin and our need for a Savior. And so the civil laws were given by God as an external means of identifying Israel as members of God's covenant family. It made them distinct from all of the pagan nations around them. And sometimes, because of the primitive days in which they lived, some of those civil laws actually protected them from diseases that they could get from foods and different things. But those civil laws that govern so many of their daily behaviors was an external way of showing that these were distinct people. These people belonged to God. They were different from all the other people in the face of the earth. The the ceremonial laws were also given by God as an external way of showing that these were His people, but also were, were guidelines for their worship so that they could worship Him in ways that honored Him. That's why the second commandment says, worship God without idols. Worship God the way He desires to be worshipped. So there were laws that governed how they came to the temple, how they came to the tabernacle. Made them distinct from all the people on the face of the earth. And, And what we very quickly learn as we go through the Old Testament, and we see all these laws being given by God through Moses to His people, we learned that Israel couldn't keep them. They failed. They sinned just like we do. The law simply cannot make any mere human worthy of eternal life because we are sinful, we're, we're weak, we're ungodly, we're unable to keep God's laws. And so, instead, God's laws reveal our sin, our need for salvation. But God is merciful and gracious. And He chose to make His people righteous and forgive their sin and give them eternal life 
But it wasn't on the basis of their keeping the law. It was on the basis of His own righteousness given to them as a gift as they placed their faith in His power and promise to save them. Like Abraham. Upon what basis did God make Abraham righteous? By faith. It says Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him. It was counted to him as righteousness. And that was before he made any effort to obey any of God's laws. And God's righteousness and power and promise to save became absolutely clear when? When Jesus Christ came to the world. Right? He, he came and to the earth and was born as a man to live and die and rise again for the sake of His people. And so, all of God's laws, the moral laws, the civil laws, the ceremonial laws, they were all fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ for us. That's why Jesus, for example, when He came to John the Baptist, He said, John the Baptist, baptize me. Why? That was part of the ceremonial laws. Jesus had to come. And, and what was the reason Jesus gave for Him asking John to baptize Him? He said, in order to fulfill what? To fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was fulfilling all the righteousness of the law for the sake of His people. So that we could be made righteous by faith. So Jesus kept all of those laws of God perfectly. He was perfect, obedient, humble, he was the Son of God. God in human form. And so, God saves sinners not on the basis of their law-keeping, but on the basis of Christ's righteous life and atoning death if that sinner will trust in Christ and believe the promise of God to save. So today, since Jesus has already completed the earthly work of salvation and is now reigning at the right hand of the Father as Lord of all, he identifies His people and sets them apart from all the other nations in his, as His covenant people. Not by external laws, but by sending His Holy Spirit to live in them and making them different and distinct and holy from the inside out. Jesus fulfilled all the ceremonial laws for us. How? By being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He fulfills Him because He's our mediator. He has already entered the holy place in heaven, not made with hands. And so we can come boldly before the throne of grace because we pray and we worship God not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's mediatorial work. That's the only, you ever think about that? The only reason you can sit here with me today and worship God and He accepts it and hears our prayers is because Christ is our mediator. Christ fulfilled all of the worship demands of God for, for His people. He fulfilled them for us and we're accepted through Christ. Christ fulfills all the civil laws. Christ fulfills all the moral laws. He cleanses us and indwells us by His Spirit and He gives us an imputed righteousness. He takes the demand for our sin, which is death, and absorbs it on the cross, and He gives to us His perfect obedience for giving every one of our sins. Now, here's the point of that. I think you understand that. Christ fulfilled the law for us. Now, does that mean that once we're saved, once Christ has fulfilled the law for us, that, that we 
we are now to become a lawless people. No. In fact, the Apostle Paul said that he goes, I, I don't preach justification by faith so that we can all be ungodly. No, I, don't, I didn't come to tear the law down. Christ established the law. He fulfilled it for us. And many of the commands of the Mosaic Law were actually reaffirmed by Christ in the New Covenant. Many of them were done away with. For example, Acts 10, remember? When, when God told Peter to go witness to Cornelius the Gentile? Remember the dream God gave to Peter? God gave the dream this Peter to uh, dream to Peter, and he he let this big sheet down right in Acts chapter ten, where all these animals, and he told Peter, "Eat it all, Peter. It's all good. It's food. Eat it." Right. In other words, you can witness and welcome any kindred and tribe and tongue and nation nation of people into the body of Christ. God was doing a work in the world of salvation uh, for every person. Or Colossians two sixteen through twenty three talks about that and says. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you saying, you've got to keep this Sabbath. Don't eat this food. Don't drink that. Keep all these laws and then you'll be part of the church. No, we're, that's fulfilled for us in Christ. So many of the laws were done away with, but some commands, you will notice as you read the New Testament, were continued and underscored. Not in order to gain eternal life, but out of love and loyalty to Christ our Savior. One of those commands, some of those commands you can see uh, for example, the New Covenant continues the prohibitions of idolatry, blasphemy, adultery, homosexuality, stealing, lying, murder. You can think of different texts of Scripture where the different apostles say, no, this is, this is still God's law. This is, this is still what God calls His people to. So just in summary here, in the Mosaic Covenant, God clearly established moral, civil, ceremonial laws for His people Israel. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, fulfilled all the laws of the Mosaic Covenant through His life and death and resurrection. Jesus Christ, our risen and ascended Lord, not only kept God's moral law for us, but He also affirmed the moral law as His commandments to be obeyed by His followers. Remember what Jesus said in John 15? If you love Me, you'll what? You'll keep My commandments. Commandments don't go away but they're not the means of our justification. They're an expression of love and obedience to Christ. So this is what you would need to say to someone. You might not give all the details I just gave, and believe me, there's so many more details that we could go through with this, but here's the point. Yes, God gave the moral law. Jesus fulfilled it for us. But Jesus also reaffirmed laws to show our love for Him and our identification with Him in the New Covenant. Those moral laws which the risen Christ reaffirmed are to be obeyed by His followers. Again, not for merit in order to gain eternal life, but for love. Because we've been given eternal life by His grace and we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And again, you can, you can pick out the texts that say them. Idolatry, blasphemy, adultery, homosexuality, and so on. Clearly reaffirm the New Testament. And ultimately, again, it's, it's the question of authority. That's what people don't want. Sinners don't like to be told what to do and not do. The most important issue is that men and women must submit themselves to the authority of God and His Word. 
Notice in the Great Commission, Jesus came to them and said to them what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What right do you have to tell me that I can't live a homosexual lifestyle? It's not my authority, friend. It's Christ's authority. And He has all authority in heaven and earth. Right? This is where you begin to call their conscience to the reality of Christ and the Creator and His law and His, His commands. So go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and what? Verse 20, teaching them to what? Observe all that I have commanded you. And don't forget the last part. Jesus says, I am with you as you do this. I am with you even to the end of the age. Establish the authority of Christ. Bring the law to bear on the conscience and point to Christ. All of these arguments are really a dodge to suppress the truth and to continue in sin. Keep speaking sound doctrine that accords with the Gospel, saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Okay, last one. You may meet someone who professes to be both homosexual and a Bible-believing Christian. Don't be surprised by that. Or, you may meet someone who is a Christian but wants to defend the homosexual lifestyle by saying that God is not against homosexuality. How do they do that? Let me show you how they do that. Number three, the Scripture never addresses homosexual orientation and monogamous, covenantal, loving homosexual relationships. I'm going to give an overview of some of these arguments because we could really spend a lot of time on these, but I don't want to do that. I just want to give an overview and I'll, I'll just point out a couple of references to you, for you. And I need, I need to give reference to where it is due for sure. This section will include material from these resources. They're one, of the, one of the well-known professing Christian homosexuals today is his name is Matthew Vines. Has anybody heard of Matthew Vines? Okay, he's written materials. He's, he's got a blog. I mean, he's, 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 he's a traveling speaker about this even. He's written a book called God and the Gay Christian. And uh, one of the books, and there are other resources that, that I could give to as well, there's a, a good resource by James White called The Same-Sex Controversy that I would commend to as well. But there's also this one that's been edited by R. Albert Moeller Jr., called God and the Great Gay Christian question mark a response to Matthew Vines. So those work well together. And what, what Matthew Vines does is he attempts to rethink and reinterpret the six major texts that condemn homosexuality as sin. And he, and he finds that they do not address something very specific. Homosexual orientation and monogamous, covenantal, loving homosexual relationships. He said you can, you can be homosexual, you can have homosexual orientation and get married just like heterosexual couples do and live a faithful, loving, marital life and be a Christian. And so he reinterprets these texts to say that they address other things like sexual excesses of lust, violation of patriarchal society, 
pederasty, and other issues. And we'll look briefly at these for a few moments. Again, remember the foundational text that we're dealing with is Genesis 1 and 2. That text establishes the condition of marriage for, or the def- definition of marriage for the rest of Scripture. And there's six major prohibitory texts. Genesis 19, Leviticus 18.22, 2013, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, and 1 Timothy 1 and verse 10. First of all, he looks at Genesis 1 and 2 and he says that procreation is not a fixed standard for marriage. Would you turn with me back to Genesis chapter 1? I think what we'll do for sake of time is I will just talk about this first one for a moment and then we'll pick up here next week and I'll give you the other texts because I think it's a little bit too much to try to hurry through. Genesis 1 and 2. I want you to see carefully how they rethink Genesis 1 and 2. He would say this, Procreation is not a fixed standard for marriage. Think about that. God makes marriages, all kinds of marriages, and the normal command, the normal standard, the normal paradigm for marriage is not to have children. That's not, that's not the fixed standard for marriage. Okay. He also says, looking at Genesis 1 and 2, that sexual complementarity is not required for one flesh union. Right? Think through that. You can have two people that are the same, not complementary. You can have two people that are the same and still achieve one flesh union. Third, the Genesis account focuses on permanent commitment. So again, he's emphasizing one aspect of the Genesis account. He's saying, Genesis account, that's what it's about. It's on a permanent commitment in marriage. Homosexual couples can do that. Fourthly, he also asserts this. Okay, the Bible clearly says it's not good for man to be alone. Including men of homosexual orientation. Well, God makes men of homosexual orientation... He must not want us to be alone. And so, we can be married in a monogamous, covenantal, loving relationship. And that's why he says, therefore, homosexual orientation is good. Homosexual, monogamous, covenantal, loving relationships are good. Those are the five major things that he asserts about Genesis 1 and 2. How do you answer it? What do you say? What do you point to? And here's the thing that I really want us to underscore, all of us, please catch this point. We can't argue from our mind to their mind. Don't present arguments just by talking to people. What we all need to learn to do is to attach what we say, root it in the words of God. Point them away from yourself to what? The Scriptures. That's what we need to do all the time. And so look at this. Here's a response. And this we see in Genesis chapter 1. 
Dear ones, the mandate of marriage is multiplication. Look at it. Genesis 1.26 God made man in His image. And what did He make? Verse 27, He made a male and a female. And God blessed them in verse 28. And God gave them a command. He blessed them with this command. And what was the commanded blessing? Be fruitful. Multiply. I don't know how you can see this any other way. That's one of the purposes of, that's one of the primary purposes of marriage. And God provided everything needed to accomplish that commanded blessing. The rest of chapter one, he's like, eat all the food you can, you can get here. Look at all I've given to you so that you can be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion and subdue it. And then, in chapter 2, he gave man a helper. Right? The only fitting helper for man is woman. That's the whole point of being a fitting helper. No other helper was found fitting in all that God had made up to that point. Remember that? That's what God says right there in verse 18. God said, it's not good that man shall be alone. I will make a helper fitting for him corresponding to, complementary to Him. That's the point of those words. Verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. So God looked through all that He had made. Think about that. He looked through everything that He had made up to that point. Not a fitting helper for being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and have dominion. No fitting. Do you think it occurred to God that He would already made a man? Well, I think I'll make another man then. No, that's not what God did. There was nothing up to that point that He had made that was a fitting helper to accomplish the purposes of marriage. So what did God do? God provided a woman. No other helper was found fitting. You see that in chapter 2, 18-25. And that fitting helper can only be physically complementary to that man. Not the same as, but complementary. Only can that, 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 that's required, that's necessary in order to achieve a one flesh union which results in multiplication. Genesis 1.28 and 2.18-25. The text makes it unmistakably clear. You have to twist things in order to get any other result. And, and Genesis 1 and 2, that pattern is then universally applied. Remember that? It's not just for Adam and Eve. This is universally applied. Verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now we're talking about every man and woman. And the only one who has the authority, listen carefully, to tamper with this Genesis 1 and 2 pattern is God Himself. And if you look through Scripture, God did adjust things here. How did He do that? The only way that God Himself alters the fixed standard of procreation in marriage is by doing what? Opening and closing the womb. Right? Does God do that? Yes, He does. We see that through Scripture. And who invented adoption? God did. Right? He's the one who adopted all of us. It's a beautiful way to multiply. Right? This is all in God's creation. But never did God alter these things by bringing a different fitting helper 
than a woman or bringing a woman to a woman or bringing a man to a man. Never did God do that. That is always only an abomination to God. So this is, this is how we respond to that first rethinking of Genesis 1 and 2. Again, all we did, dear ones, is we just looked at the text, what it says. We got serious about the words. And we pressed them out and say, your words can't be true according to Genesis 1 and 2 because this is what these words mean. Now, people like Matthew Vines come to these interpretations by, here it is, reading their own personal experiences back into the text. That's what they're doing. Emphasizing what they can relate to. De-emphasizing or ignoring what doesn't fit into their personal experience. When we start doing with that, that with the Word of God, that is a very dangerous path to walk on. Right? That, is, that is the path of depravity that Romans chapter 1 talks about. Alright, we're going to stop there for today. And let me just close by saying this again. All of this rethinking, like I said, is a subtle way of suppressing the truth in order to allow sin. You understand that? All the rethinking of texts, all of the rethinking of God, so on. And so we seek to respond with truth to the different arguments and lies that have been believed. Understand clearly the war that you're engaging in. 2 Corinthians 10 Three through five. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Our weapons are the are the truth of God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We we by by speaking the truth in love, we are destroying arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's your goal. You see that. When you interchange with someone like this, you are seeking to destroy arguments from the evil one. We can do that with the Word of God. You want to take thoughts captive to Christ. You want to cut down every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ. But also, listen, don't neglect to boldly and accurately speak the law and the Gospel of Christ, but do it with humility. We'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks. Do it with humility and gentleness and love. We have to understand this. You can speak the truth boldly and clearly without apology, but do it humbly. You can. You can do it with gent- gentleness and love. And remember, and this Paul gives us such a wonderful example of this, like we said at the beginning. He says, look, the law is good. It's laid down not for people who think they're righteous. It's laid down for people so that they can see their sin. It's, it's laid down for the lawless and disobedient. And he lists law-breaking. And he says, that's sound doctrine. And he says, I want to show you the Gospel. All of this is in accordance with the Gospel. It prepares you to receive the Gospel, to feel your need for the Gospel. And then how does Paul continue? <sighs> Look what God did to me. Look what God did with me. I was a blasphemer. See, that's when we realize this, and this in the process, 
This is what gives us a true sense of humility. We'll talk more about this, but we can't pretend to be humble when we're sharing the gospel. It'll, they'll see it, right? Pretend humility isn't humility. Real humility is humility. And the only way we can come to that is if Christ gives it to us as we see who we are, who we were. Just like Paul says, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was insolent. But what? I received mercy. And if I received mercy, and I'm an object of God's patience, and grace overflowed for me, in my even, even though I was ignorant and unbelieving, look what God did for me. He gave me the faith I needed to believe in Christ. He gave me love for Christ. Those overflowed for me. I'm going to tell you something that is trustworthy. You can believe this. You send your homosexual friend home with this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm the foremost of them. You can tell them that. But I received mercy. And if I received mercy, so can you. If Christ saved me, He can save you. In fact, my salvation can be an example to you that Christ can save you too. That's exactly what Paul says. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And then, Paul gives God glory for His saving grace. Well, this is, this is how we answer. This is how we respond to our homosexual friends who need the Gospel just like we do. May the Lord enable us to witness faithfully. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, again, we think of these things and we ask the question that Paul did, who is sufficient for these things? We are not. We can't change a human heart. We can barely get our thoughts together and out our mouths correctly. Father, help us. And Father, as we speak, it's so easy for some sense of pride and, and argument-winning desire to come bursting out into offend the one who's listening, not because of gospel truth, but because of our own selfish pride. Father, we need Your humility. You, are who are the greatest of all, are the most humble being in the universe. Because you became, you became a man. And You lived among us and bore the worst of the human experience for our good. Father, help us to Bear the witness of Christ like Christ did. Like Paul did. Teach us. Help us to remember who we are and who we were without Christ. And how much You are exercising Your mercy and grace and patience toward us every day. Give us that true humility. And with it, Father, give us a firm conviction in the truth that we would speak it and cast down lofty opinions which raise themselves against the knowledge of Christ. Help us to take rogue thoughts in, in people's minds captive to Christ. Help us to destroy arguments with the truth. Not, not to win an argument. Not to, not to put another badge on our belt. But Father, to see a 
soul saved. To see them convicted of their sin and see their need for Jesus Christ, the glorious Savior. Father, craft us into an army of loving warriors who wield the the sword that makes the wounded whole. And may we bring you glory as we do it and love and love people well. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus.